All right, everybody, welcome. Welcome. Those of you who are at home, also, very warmly welcome. So, uh, before we go any further, let's go through the Bible verse quiz. Those of you who are at home, you will have a, uh, a handout, I hope, a PDF handout that came in your inbox, oh goodness, an hour and a half or more ago. Super organised, well ahead of the game today. And it has, uh, halfway down the right-hand side on the front page, a bonus Bible verse quiz box, and there are eight Bible references in there, and that, those eight correspond to the eight uh, references that aren't included on the right-hand side of the page underneath each of the eight headings. So, uh, hands up, anybody who thinks they've got all eight correct, because I've got, I've got some candy here for anybody who thinks they have. Nobody... All right, come on, first one. What's the first one? Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Then also Jeremiah 29. Something like that might be in Jeremiah. Yeah. Yeah. Then nobody wants my Haribo. Am I going to have to eat all these myself? You need more time. We haven't got more time. Does, any, does anybody have any of them right? Okay, don't worry about it. Well, I'm going to keep my Haribo then. You're not having it, right? There we are. The, the, that, that candy will testify against you. Right? Okay, well, I didn't expect that at all. Um, anybody who thinks they can... Well, I'm going to have to tell you the Bible verses during... Yeah, I know. You're looking... Oh, look at you, Jude. Okay, look. You should... There we are. You have some candy, because you, you, you get more of what you incentivize, and I want to incentivize enthusiasm. All right, we're done with silly games. All right, that candy is going to be for, I don't know, the, my kids or something. All right, um, we're going to pray, and then we're going to jump into this evening's... Um, the, this is the final eschatology Bible study. Uh, we do have something exciting lined up, um, a new series starting next week, but I won't talk about that now. We're just going to get started with this one. Let me lead us in prayer, and then we will get going. Merciful Father, we are grateful to you for every good gift that comes from your hand. Thank you for your word, the Bible. Thank you for the the lives that you've given us. Thank you for the world in which you've placed us, for the history that your word narrates and which you've given us the privilege of living in. And we pray now that you would give us wisdom and insight as we seek to uh, understand what our future may hold. Father, allow us, we pray, to see in the scriptures Uh, deep things and true and good and wonderful things so that we may know ourselves and our world better and be better equipped to live faithfully as Christ's disciples and we pray in his name. Amen. All right, so introduction. Uh, I don't think I need to say again all the stuff that I've said most weeks for the last um, three months about what this uh, series of Bible studies has been except to say just one last time that we've been looking at the flow of God's plan for the whole of human history from the creation and indeed before the creation of the world all the way through the Old Testament period, which is a narrative of history up to the coming of Christ and beyond. And that has provided a framework for understanding our future. Too often eschatology Uh, The content gets its cue too much from the name, eschatos meaning last, and so it leaps immediately to the future and tries to figure out what's going to happen in 
at the end of this period of history without building the necessary historical foundations for understanding the answer to that question. So Pastor Shaw actually commented the other day, this has been, uh, I can't remember how you put it, but it's worse to the effect of there's been quite a lot of Old Testament in this eschatology series. This has been the most Old Testament heavy eschatology series um, he's ever been in. And yes, that's quite deliberate. I think you can now understand why that should be. But we still uh, have not answered some of the, oh, please tell us, questions about the, the future of the world that we live in and of the nation that we live in. In other words, we've not answered the questions that some of our friends might start with. We've not even got to them after 12 weeks of study. But here we are, week 13, and we're going to be trying to piece together some kind of picture of America's future or futures. I'm going to try and predict America's future. Well, sort of. Uh, I want to begin with a quotation from one of my favorite preachers. Um, This was Pastor Pastor Shaw's first sermon after his installation here from Jonah chapter 1, when he said, quote, Make Israel great again is a very poor substitute for the Pentecostal plan of God. And I thought that was so good. I wrote it down and it's now on my door, and it's at the door of my study. Have you seen that? Yeah, it is. It's been there for about two weeks. You're walking up and down that corridor already, kind of in a daze. Anyway, because I think it captures so wonderfully um, how the coming of Christ expands and amplifies the expectations that were latent in Israel's history. Jonah, of course, uh, wanted to make Israel great again, but at the expense of the nations. Uh, God has a better idea, a better idea. His plan, which was really kicked into gear at Pentecost, is that the nations should be discipled. And you've seen that in the the last few weeks we've been thinking about this. And so the question then arises, okay, well, let's think about the details of this Pentecostal plan of God, what will it involve? And to introduce that, I turn to another quotation, again on the handouts that you've got. This is from one of my favorite living theologians, my old friend and former professor and fellow elder at the church I pastored in London and uh, a mentor, really, for many years, David Field, who in an essay that he wrote called Samuel Rutherford and the Confessionally Christian State. I mean, that sounds like such a kind of anodyne and calm essay, doesn't it? Let me tell you, he delivered this first as a a lecture. Was that a lecture? It was more a kind of uh, explosion or series of explosions in a lecture room at Oak Hill Theological College. And I remember the the kind of spellbound, blown away, head-explodey emoji-ness of every single man, woman and child in the audience that was back in the early 2000s, when he gave this lecture, which was then published as, a book, as a, an essay in a book, A High Throne, edited by Chris Green, who was the vice principal of the college. In it, David writes this, quote, It took 1,400 years for 1% of the world's population to become Christians, and then another 360 years for that to double to 2%. Another 170 years saw that grow from 2% to 4%, and then 
between 1960, so you add those numbers up, if you're starting at Pentecost or thereabouts um, uh, in, in AD 30, th- those years take you to 1960. Between 1960 and 1990, the proportion of the world's population made up of Bible-believing Christians rose from 4% to 8%. Now, in 2007, that's when he gave the lectures, a third of the world's population confesses that Jesus is Lord and 11% of the world's population comprises evangelical Christians. That is, as distinct from, let's say, Catholic or liberal or orthodox. The evangelical church is growing twice as fast as Islam and three times as fast as the world's population. And South America is turning Protestant faster than continental Europe did in the 16th century. What a time to be alive. And I've, a few times in the past, I've plotted this on a graph just to try and highlight for people what it looks like. And I... I I couldn't resist it. Just one more time. So, here we are. Percentage Christian and time. And here's the cross of Jesus and there's Pentecost and there's 1,000, 1,500, 2,000 there. And the graph looks something like that. 10... 20, 30. And depending on whether you're being really optimistic about Roman Catholics and the Orthodox Church, maybe it goes sort of like that. But either way, I mean, that's, that's, like, the, um, that's like the charts that try and get you to believe about global warming, isn't it? I mean, it's just like, <laughs> you know what I mean? There's, there's nothing on earth like this. I mean, even that is, is not as steep as it should be. This is 1500, really. It's more like this, isn't it? It's like like that. I mean, it just basically goes vertical in the last couple of hundred years. Isn't that astonishing? What time to be alive. And, of course, it raises the question, so where do we go from here? What's going to happen next? And in recent years, especially with the rise of dispensationalism, which we've talked about, but then more recently with the resurgence of uh, reformed uh, Christian faith in the West and the interest in shaping Christian culture, which has come from a whole variety of different uh, theological sources. And and then more recently, again, with the rise of uh, the internet and social media and people's ability to speak and communicate to one another, there is a huge interest in trying to understand and predict and respond to what God is doing in the world. These are the numbers, but of course there's much more to it than that, isn't there? It's like the church is not just about numbers, is it? It's about discipling the nations. It's about uh, shaping the culture of the world in which we find ourselves. And we've seen that for reasons we'll recount again tonight and for reasons you can remember, creation, mandate, and so on and so forth. And I actually think this is this is good and bad. And just, just as we embark on this attempt to predict America's futures, I want to try and explain what I think is good and what I think is bad about the whole project of trying to predict where we go from here. What happens next? It's good in the sense that 
obviously it's good to try and understand the world that God has put us in. Obviously it's good to try and cut with the grain of what the Spirit is doing in the world. Uh, We want to respond in faithfulness to God's sovereign grace, don't we? And I, I always think in this connection of Philippians 2, 12 and 13, you might like to just turn to that because it's, just, it's such an important text for understanding um, how we should respond to, um, to God's sovereign grace in history and in our own lives. I'm going to rub this out because I need it again in a second. While you're turning to Philippians 2. So Philippians 2, 12 and 13, this, rather like the, the book of 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, this is a letter to a church that Paul is really enthusiastic about. He's thrilled with their um, commitment to Christ and their love for one another. And so Philippians 2, 12, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not now, so, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, keep doing so. He's encouraging the faithfulness. And notice how he does it. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to act, or will and to work for his good pleasure. So notice the two poles of, of what God is doing in the world. It is God who works in you, verse 13. What we are to do on account of his work in us and in response to his work in us, work out your own salvation. Can you see those two things? It is a profoundly godly thing to do, to think, what's God doing in me? What's what's God's plan for me? And how do I respond to that in faithfulness? To do that is not to take away from God's sovereignty, it's to respond in faith to God's sovereignty, because God's sovereign work is a work that he does in us, not apart from us. And just as that's the case in relation to our faith in Christ and uh, our walking the path of godliness in the Christian life, so also I think we are to understand that it is the case in relation to understanding the world we live in. You you can't really walk in faithfulness in a world you don't understand at all, or you can't do so very easily. So I want to say, on the one hand, When we're thinking about answering this question, how do we predict America's future, it is a profoundly good thing to try and figure out what's going to happen next. But, and you could all smell that but coming, couldn't you? I think there are some dangers. I mean, the the obvious danger is that we misunderstand things. Like if, if a dispensationalist tries to figure out what happens next from within the dispensationalist framework, they're going to be mistaken, and so they might do all kinds of things that will be unwise. But even for people who've got the doctrine mostly right, there is another cluster of mistakes that we could make. What what happens if you get your eschatology right, but then you misread the culture? Can you see there's a danger there? It might be possible, in other words, not only to misunderstand what the Bible says, well, let's hope we've got that at least broadly right. But we might also misunderstand what's going on in the world around us. And that is particularly tempting in our age where there are so many uh, sources of commentary about what's going on in the world around us. I alluded to these earlier. Um, 
one of the features of the Christian blogosphere is a widespread but unacknowledged ongoing project of trying to read the culture, trying to understand what's going on in the world. And, and when, when people commend a certain approach to life, how you should educate your children, who you should vote for, what you should think about vaccine mandates, where you should live, what kind of job you should get. These are things which have been all over the Christian blogosphere in recent years. When people commend a particular approach to life, there is almost always, I don't want to say always, but you know, I'm ready to admit an exception. So, but almost always, and certainly always in all the experience I can think of, there is always a twofold claim being made. The first is a claim to be able to read the Bible. And the second is a claim to be able to read the culture, to be able to read history, to be able to say what it is that God is doing. And I have to say, sometimes I think people get it wrong. Or at least they get it far more specific than anybody could reasonably expect to be sure about. This is part of a broader, um, it's a part of a broader phenomenon, actually. Hands up if you've heard of Philip Tetlock. Come across Philip Tetlock. He's written a, a couple of books. Um, uh, one is called Expert Political Judgment. Uh, another is called Super Forecasters. What, what, what Tetlock does is he analyzes the predictions of experts. He's got this massive piece of research that he did with a bunch of other people, analyzing the predictions of experts about what's going to happen next. So he'd ask them questions like, I don't know whether this, this was in the questions he asked, but like, is, is Russia going to invade Ukraine anytime in the next two years? He might ask them that in you know, 2013 or something. Um, Will the S&P 500 index finish above 5,000 at the end of this year? You know, these kind of big picture questions. He'll ask them, and he's got thousands of experts and thousands of questions, so like hundreds of thousands of data points, and he finds that the experts are slightly worse than random at predicting the future. In other words, you would be better off employing a bunch of random dart-throwing monkeys than you would to ask the experts about what's going to happen next. And then sometimes you get some Christian blogger who comes along who thinks he can do better. Really? It's the same thing happens in financial markets. You, you know somebody is a complete charlatan when they come to you and they say, you've got to buy this stock because it's guaranteed to go up whatever it is in the next three months. You're like, That's the sign you know somebody is, is a con artist. But, at the same time, there is such a thing as responsible political forecasting, responsible politics, responsible financial planning, right? Just to run with that illustration for a moment, and this is on my mind because of a podcast interview I did recently, but, but just to, to go with that illustration for a moment... What you want from your financial advisor is not somebody who's pretending to know the future. Presumably, you want somebody who's going to give you a plan 
which stands a reasonable chance of doing reasonably well in a whole range of possible future outcomes which nobody could know. Can you see the difference? And it, it's the same in politics. You, you don't want a political leader who thinks he knows the future and has got exactly the plan lined up to... Because what if he's wrong? Which often they are. What you really want is, is a leader who is able to say, well, we don't know what's going to happen. So how do we construct a set of political and policy goals so that whatever happens in the future, in this un- unknown future landscape, this country's going to be okay, right? And I want to suggest we're in a similar situation. I'm not going to tell you tonight what's going to happen in America next year or in 10 years' time or in 50 years' time or next week. Like, 10 years ago, who would have predicted Dobbs? I mean, that's just like quite a big thing on the Christian landscape, right? And, And these discrete big events, of course they can't be predicted, but as Christians... We are in a slightly different, and I'd want to say a better position, to say uh, three things about history, and therefore three things about the future, which do enable us to, to a certain extent, predict what's going to happen. It's not who's going to win the next presidential election it's not what what's your retirement portfolio going to do it's not what the next supreme court decision is going to be or the next mayor of fort worth but it's okay something that is actionable now about future events and these three principles i want to suggest are as follows first i've said already the details of history can't be predicted in general Anybody who tells you otherwise is a charlatan. You know precisely that the date of the return of Christ can't be predicted because Jesus told us. He told us that he doesn't know. And so it is with many, many other things. It's interesting. You've got to wonder why, why do people still remain Jehovah's Witnesses after how many failed attempts to predict the end of the world? You know, It's just... like. Is there's something unbelievably credulous about human nature. We must resist this temptation to follow people who think they can tell us what's going to happen because the details can't be predicted. But secondly, the overall shape of history, I want to suggest to you, is clear. So if we go back to our, that diagram again, we know about the shape of history, things that the secular forecasters and secular politicians don't know. We know something about how it began and what's happened up to this point and how to understand what's happened up to this point. And we do know that, and here's the crucial thing, there is one data point right at the end, yes? There's a data point at the end, which is the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Yes? Um, Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Uh, the nations will come to Mount Zion, beating their plows, their, their swords into plowshares, and so on. So we've got this final data point, and actually we've got something of the structure between now and then. Remember the parables of growth that Jesus spoke about? The seed that's sown that produces 30, 60, 100 times. The leaven that permeates the whole dough until it's all leavened. 
the rock that grows to become a mountain that fills the whole earth. So we know not just a data point right at the end, but something about between now and then, there's some kind of gradual processes going on in relation to the spread of the gospel, the growth of the kingdom, the maturation of the people of God. So the overall shape of history, the overall shape is clear. And thirdly, this is the third principle, the structure of history is typological. Now let me explain what I mean by that. Have you noticed how many times in the Bible you get a woman who can't have a child for a period of time, who then subsequently does have a child, and that child turns out to be really significant. Have you noticed that? Can you give me some examples? Yeah, Timothy. Samuel. Uh, yes, Samuel, Samuel's mum, Samuel's yeah? you remember her name? Yeah, anybody remember Samuel's mum's name? Yeah, Hannah, well done. Very good. You're like, you're one step ahead, Timothy. You're like, well, I don't know her son's, her son's name. So, Sam, Sam, oh, sorry, Samuel's mother, Hannah. Anybody else? Sarah, yes. You're going to say Sarah. Rachel, yeah. Sarah, Rachel, Hannah, anybody else? Elizabeth, yeah. John the Baptist's mother. Mary, kind of, yeah. The ultimate can't have a child woman. Just, you know. <laughs> and and it, gets, it gets to the point where it's ridiculous, you know. After you've seen this four or five times, you, start, you, you run into Elizabeth in Luke chapter 1, and you remembered Sarah, you remembered... Um, uh, uh, Hannah, you've remembered. Sorry, I'm getting all entangled now. Uh, you've remembered uh, Isaac, Rebecca. You've remembered Rebecca. You've remembered um, uh, all the other childless women. In a sense, um, uh, Ruth and Naomi are childless women, childless for different reasons. Um, both widowed. One of them has lost both sons. But you get to the point where you see Elizabeth. It's like, yes, she can't have a child. It's going to be awesome. And, and, and why do you think that? The reason you think that is because you think, oh, I've seen this before. I've seen this before. Because there's these patterns in history. Whenever you get a childless woman, God is about to do something amazing. Now, it's not a 100% bomb-proof narrative that repeats itself with every childless woman in the world. That's not what we're saying. We're saying the structure of history as God narrates it in Scripture has these patterns in it, and something like those patterns we might expect to see again. Now, childless women. Have you, have you noticed, I mean, similar thing, um, how many times um, in the book of Genesis and Exodus you've got a guy meets a girl by a well and starts talking about marriage? It's like a couple of times in Genesis, once in Exodus, a couple of, couple of other times, there's one or two parodies in the book of Judges. And then Jesus in John chapter 4. And he goes, and he immediately says, go call your husband and come back here. And, and I'm like, what? <laughs> who, who mentioned husbands? It's like, all the other boy meets girl by well and starting talking about marriage stories. That's why we're talking about husbands in John chapter 4 with Jesus and the Samaritan woman. Of course, the difference is that in the, in the previous ones, Abraham sends his servant to find a wife from our own people for his son. Jesus specifically goes to a place where he'll find somebody who's not from his people, Samaria. To find a woman who's had five husbands, is now with another guy, 
last person on earth you'd want to marry, and it turns out that she's to be a part of his bride. You see what's happening here? So these patterns repeat themselves. Now, exactly the same thing happens in many, many, many other scenarios. History is typological, which means we can tentatively, cautiously, non-presumptuously make some kind of statements about what God is going to do now and in the future on the basis of what he's done in the past. And one example we'll come to in this uh, uh, handout that you've got on your, um, just, to, just to give you a sense of where I'm going to be taking this. Number six, the Lord will use inconspicuous people and actions to accomplish great things. How do I know that? We'll get to it in a second, 20 minutes or so. Where I know that is because that's what God always does. I mean, yeah, sometimes he uses Cyrus, king of Persia, as his Messiah, which is what Isaiah calls him. But much more often he'll use some nobody that nobody's ever heard of. And so maybe there's some lessons there. Okay, so with those three principles in mind, what we're going to do is we're going to raid the storehouse of the previous 12 sessions that we've been thinking about together and try and say, what can we responsibly, wisely say about America's future? And indeed the future of the world. And it's not going to be anything that is going to predict the outcome of the next election or the next Supreme Court decision. But it might just be something that's really useful for you as you think about what on earth to do with the rest of your life. So, let's go through these one at a time. Before we do that, let me pause. Any questions so far? You all happy with where we're going? Yeah? Sure? Speak now or hold your peace for 45 minutes. Um, All right. So we've got eight things to cover. We've got 45 minutes. Eight fives are 40. That would leave a five-minute spare. So let's try to do each one in five minutes. Here goes. First... From what we've learned so far about eschatology, about history, about what God's doing in the world, the first thing that's absolutely clear to us is that in the end, every single human activity will glorify God. Now, let's just clarify that a little bit. Um, That doesn't mean that sinful human activities will, as sins, glorify God. It means that they'll be repented of and replaced with righteous deeds, the repentance from those sins is glorifying to God. If you're, if you're guilty of a sin, the one place that it's safe to be is openly acknowledging and confessing and repenting of it, and then you're fine. It's not safe to be anywhere else. Um, but 1 Corinthians 10.31 Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. This isn't really Paul's point. It's certainly Paul's assumption that whatever it is you're doing, eating, drinking, whatever it is you're doing, you could do it to glorify God. God is interested in all the minute details of our lives. And you know that. And you know it partly because Genesis 1, the the cultural mandate, the creation mandate, when we talked about that, we, we talked about it in the broadest possible terms. It's not just whatever your job is, though it includes that. It's all, everything we might do to draw out from the created world its latent, unrealized potential. And so many of the uh, 20th century 
and 19th century reformed greats, especially 20th century actually, talked a good deal about um, how to cultivate a Christian perspective on the arts. Think of someone like Francis Schaeffer. Hands up if you've ever read anything by Francis Schaeffer. Yeah, really significant figure. Um, uh, in, uh, in Switzerland, he founded a community called Le Brie, The Refuge. Um, and it was a place where you just go to talk and reflect and think. And um, you know, The Le Brie movement has had its ups and downs since then. But, but what Francis Schaeffer did to create a community where, where people could think about how the gospel would impact many different areas of life did a great deal for stimulating some creative reflection on the fact that God is to be glorified in art. Let me give one example. Just to, this isn't something I'm commending to you or something to do, but it's an illustration of this. Um, I had a friend in England uh, who was uh, Iranian. And uh, as uh, uh, an Iranian, it's a Muslim country, Iran. And if, if you ever go into a mosque, you notice something very interesting, very interesting features of the decorations. In, in, in Muslim theology, it is forbidden to uh, depict anything in the world um, artistically, in any kind of representative art. You can't draw pictures, you can't make sculptures of anything that exists, trees, people, anything at all. There are some minority strands of Islam where it's kind of allowed, but they're regarded as heretical by the mainstream, and it's connected with the Muslim doctrine of creation and God. It's regarded as idolatrous to depict what Allah is believed to have made, and so you don't do it. So what happens in, in mosques, if you go into a mosque, the, the human artistic creative impulse can't express itself anywhere, not in a mosque, not outside a mosque. And it's sort of, it's like, it's got to go somewhere, and so it bursts out in the only thing that Muslims are allowed to depict creatively, which is writing. In Muslim theology, you are allowed to do calligraphy, a form of calligraphy in Arabic. Now, if you go into a mosque, you find the most spectacularly detailed and ornate calligraphy painted on ceramic tiles, floor to ceiling, all over the Muslim world. And what's happened there is that... uh, People who are made by God have had the the artistic impulse stifled. We're made to create beautiful things, to paint and to do woodwork and get a lathe and make bowls and just take a random example, right? And to to, uh, make beautiful clothes and jewellery and to adorn ourselves, you know, within limits and to make ourselves beautiful and to make beautiful works of art. But in Islam, you're not allowed to do that in this particular way. So it... This impulse bursts out in calligraphy. And so my friend was a Muslim and he's converted. He became a Christian. So what's he going to do? Well, it turns out he's a really good artist. <laughs> so what he did, he, he developed this form of art where he would take the, the, the techniques used to create Muslim Quranic graffiti, uh, uh, calligraphy, not graffiti. Uh, oops. <laughs> Um, I mean, and, and of course, these, you know, these, all these things all over the wall of the mosque, it might say, um, Allah is the one true God and Muhammad is, is his prophet 10,000 times in 
every ever so slightly different calligraphic form. In other words, lies, idolatrous and blasphemous lies. So what he's done, he'd get the same form of art and put Bible verses in Arabic. And I've got to tell you, it was some of the most beautiful, multicoloured, complex, textured art that I've ever seen. Like, first up, I I taught an English class in in, um, England, and he came along to the English class, and I was helping him to learn English, and we got to know each other. He brought some of his paintings with him and showed me. It was absolutely glorious and wonderful. Now, think theologically, what's he done? Well, he's realised, number one, Every human activity will glorify God. So how do you get blasphemous Quranic calligraphy to glorify God? Retaining what's good and glorious in it, but replacing that which is sinful and idolatrous with something good and glorious. Well, that's what he's tried to do. That is beautiful. Abraham Kuyper one of those reformed greats from the last couple of hundred years that I'm uh, mentioning, said once famously, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. You heard that quotation before. Many of you will have done. The the point is that Jesus is going to be Lord of everything. Our friend, um, Pastor Douglas Wilson, is fond of saying, if Christ isn't Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. That's one of the first things I ever heard him say. I thought, that's brilliant. She should be a blogger or something. Anyway, or a preacher. Preacher, better. Um, now, of course, what this, um, this rests on other theological foundations. Um, the church is not going to be just about the business of saving souls. Yes, we want to save souls. I, we don't want people to go to hell. We want them to be saved from hell. We don't want their souls to end up there. That would be bad. But it's not just about that. When you, when you go rescue the, the lost sheep and bring him back into the fold, you've not finished the job, you've just begun the job. And so it is with all of us. All of us, have every aspect of our lives needs to be brought into line with the, the word of God. So the way we go about our work, for example. If you, how is All Saints Presbyterian Church, how are we all going to cut with the grain of what God is doing in the world but by seeking to do our jobs in a way which is distinctly godly and Christian. Now, it might be that you know, there's not a particularly distinctively reformed way of being a tax accountant, but it might be that there are some distinctively Christian things that you'd do in that context. You see what I'm saying? And we should expect, then, that it's worth investing in everything. It's worth trying to cultivate a Christian stance in every area of life that's the first thing so there's no there's no it's not like just sundays the 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 way that the world is going to be transformed is by us coming to church and that's it it's not that it is the whole of our lives being brought under the rule of christ number one number two let me get to the bottom of this and then we'll pause see if you've got any questions so far second the nations will be transformed that is Uh, echoing Psalm 72, verse 11. May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. It is not simply the case that the the graph that I drew for you depicts the increase of the number of Christian believers 
during history. It's also the case that the, the national and larger social structures of which we're a part will, over time, come to be distinctly Christian. There have been periods in history when this has been the case more than it is now in America. In America now, we are kind of surfing the wave of 10 or 12 generations ago, a number of significant Christian leaders and people influenced by the gospel who who shaped the constitutional and legal and political structures of the nation that we live in. So there have been highs. You know, there was a period in British history in the 17th century where the, the parliament got on the phone, well, not through the phone, they, they called John Owen, who at that time was chancellor in Oxford, Oxford University, and basically said, can you come down to Westminster to tell us how to do our job, please? And he went and preached a series of sermons to the nation. They're in volume eight of his collected works. He basically says, one of them is called Christ's Kingdom and the Magistrate's Power. And he has this line where he says, the gospel hath a right to be preached unto every nation under heaven. And he's exhorting the parliamentarians to make sure that it's possible for the church to do that. Don't be putting in place laws that stop the church preaching the gospel. That's your obligation as Christian magistrates, civil rulers. And that is, Owen was one of the greatest British, probably the greatest British theologian in living memory. Not living, not still alive, but... um, uh, And, um, yeah, he was post-mill. He understood that the gospel will shape nations. He wasn't surprised, probably he was honoured to be asked, but it wouldn't have been a shock to him. Like, what would you ask me about that for? To show the rulers of the nation how to do their jobs. Now, you see this all over the Bible. I mentioned it, one of the really subtle texts that highlights this, Genesis 12, where the Lord says to Abraham, in you all the tribes of the land will be blessed. Genesis 12, 3. That is subtly changed in Genesis 22. After, after Abraham has nearly sacrificed his son, you get a repetition of nearly the same thing. But instead of saying all the tribes of the land, it says all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. You see what's happened? Oh, the son has nearly been sacrificed on the mountain where the temple will one day be. So now the nations of the earth can be discipled, not just the tribes who live in this land. You get the same thing in Psalm 2, exhortation to all the the kings of the earth to kiss the son, that is pay reverence to the Messiah, stop rebelling against the Lord and his Christ. Psalm 72, from which this quote is taken. Uh, Matthew 28, disciple the nations. Jesus says he doesn't say people from the nations or people in the nations or people out of the nations. There are lots of different things he could have said, but he just said the nations. is the object of the verb to disciple. So we are to expect um, national entities. America will be saved and her rulers. Now, the realization of this has in recent decades prompted some of our reformed forefathers in the faith to spend quite a lot of time trying to work out the details the so-called theonomy movement in the 80s and 90s onwards. I don't know if you've heard of the term familiarity. Yes, of course it is. Um, well, I, people like um, Greg Barnson and uh, Ruzus Rashduni, Gary DeMar, Gary North, 
spent a lot of time writing effectively blueprints for Christendom 2.0 or 3.0, depending on how we count Charlemagne, um, or 4.0, because I mean Britain in the 17th century. Anyway, like, what should it look like? And in one sense, you think, well, you know, why not? Um, and in their writings, they also insisted that the way we're going to get there is by bottom-up evangelism and growth of the church, not by top-down imposition of Christian theocracy. Theocracy is good. Right? Theocracy just means God rules things. And we know we're, all, we're in a theocracy. God actually rules. The question is, you know, is he acknowledged or not? by the people who rule on his behalf? And the answer is at the moment, no. Now, it will be good if they were acknowledged, were to acknowledge the rule of the Messiah and the rule of the living God, but at the moment they don't. But, see, there's a problem. Um, sometimes an, an overzealous preoccupation with working out the details of how Christendom 4.0 should operate can distract us from precisely the means by which we're going to get there. My friend David Field, who I quoted earlier, has, I couldn't find the quotation, but I remember him writing years ago. He got this long list of quotations from all those kind of first-wave theonomist guys, all insisting that the way that the nations will be transformed is by individual churches growing gradually through evangelism and discipleship and families through the generations raising their children in Christian homes. So it's the bottom up, not top down. And that is obvious if you think about it. It wouldn't be a, it wouldn't be a Christian ruler if he were trying to impose that which can't be imposed, faith in Christ. It would have to be that you get to the point where the nation will only elect a really godly reformed leader. <laughs> and we're nowhere near that, and we're not going to be until, well, we'll come to this point seven or point eight. When, um, we're not going to get there until uh, we've done a lot more work at grassroots to, by the grace of God, shape the society that we're in. This also highlights something else, which is, if you remember back um, the Mosaic Covenant, uh, when Moses is on the verge of not going into the land of Canaan, he preaches the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 4. Remember what he says? Just look with me. Just go back to Deuteronomy 4. Because this is, a, this is something really worth keeping in our minds when we find ourselves becoming somewhat frustrated with those responsible for um, civil governance. You see, it's true... It's absolutely true that the nations should, Psalm 2, kiss the sun, and that the kings and rulers, presidents and prime ministers and congressmen and members of parliament should begin their day with a prayer that they really mean, wherein they say something like, Lord Jesus Christ, we praise and thank you that you have placed us here with the responsibility to do your work. Please guide us in the execution of it, that we may do only that which is pleasing in your sight. Amen. That would be wonderful. Truth is, they don't right now. And we can get frustrated with that, can't we? And we think, well, what, why, won't, why can't we have godly, principled, Christian political leaders? And the answer is, Deuteronomy chapter 4, what will it take for all the nations of the world and their leaders to come to Christ? Well, verse 5. This is what the, the Lord says through Moses. 
See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you're entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as our as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law I set before you today? Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, unless they depart from your heart all the days of your life, which of course is exactly what happened again and again and again. And it's exactly what tends to happen in our day, History is typological, you see. It absolutely is not the case that the nations will be discipled and that kings will bow before Jesus and presidents will pray, meaning it, before they start work every day until the church keeps the word of the Lord and shows the wisdom of the Lord's ways to the world. So what's going to happen in America's future? Well, at some point, the church is going to start shaping up and doing it. And it's doing it now a little bit, but it's patchy. Isn't it? How well are we doing with the Deuteronomy 4 thing? You know what I'm saying? It's, it, hmm. Yeah, so it's one of those, you point one finger at the, the newly elected mayor, president, congressman, and those other three fingers point back at you, and you realise that the Lord has told you what's going to happen in history. We'll get the leaders we deserve. Um, we'll get righteous leaders when the only way that somebody could be elected was when the righteousness of the leader so commended itself to the people voting for him or her. Right now, we have some work to do, don't we? Okay, let me pause there just for a second and then we'll, we'll keep going in a minute. But any questions or um, thoughts so far? You see what we're doing in, as we're doing this? We're sketching the the way in which the future is going to unfold. Comments, questions? Should you keep going? Nicole's got her hand up. You do that thing, don't you? Like, I'm not sure where this has gone. What do you think? Yes. Yes, correct. Yes. Yes. Um, let me repeat the question just because those at home. Um, I, we talk about nations will be transformed, but that must come with a caveat that not, e- not every specific particular nation that now exists might last for long enough. Right? That's one way of putting it. So Babylon, for example. You know, Assyria. Um, the, the, the world powers of um, two and a half thousand years ago. Yeah, that's gone. And yeah, you're right. We'll come to that under point five. Um, it turns out that nations rise and nations die. Yeah, death and resurrection is the pattern for history. Well, we learned that from somebody. And sometimes nations are renewed. Sometimes they have to die so they can be resurrected. And that's, what's, that's actually what happens in the exile. And maybe we'll come to that. Um, number three, let's, let's speed up a little bit or we're going to run out of time, which is going to be a shame. 
<laughs> Number three, thinking about what's going to happen in the future. Now, this is Pastor Jeffrey predicting America's future. Right? We probably have many more generations to go. Now, how do I know that? Come on, Jeffers, what are you talking about? Well, firstly, we know that we can't predict when the final coming of Jesus is going to be because he told us. But that doesn't mean that we can't predict when it couldn't be. Think. If Jesus has said, the nations are going to be subdued and discipled before I return, which is more or less what he said, paraphrasing, well, they're not subdued and discipled yet, so we can't come back yet. In fact, there are other reasons to think the same thing. I mean, God's promised to show mercy to a thousand generations of those who love him. We haven't had a thousand generations yet. We've had 80 since Pentecost, quite some way to go. Um, Depending on how you count it, 300 since Adam. I mean, the Lord wants thousands of generations. And if you think about it, it... um, what I was saying a moment or two ago about, my goodness, haven't we got a long way to go? Yeah, the answer is we have got a long way to go. We probably have a long way to go. And the recognition that what we might see in our generation is going to be potentially quite limited is humbling. Uh, for some, it is too infuriating to swallow but it has to be wrestled with. And just think what the Lord said to Isaiah in Isaiah 6. He's got to, he's got to preach to a people who will never listen to him, won't understand. He, he won't understand. He, the Lord says, and who, who will go for us? Who shall I send? Who will go for us? And he says, send me. And he says, great, you keep going and preach until the, the fields are deserted and the land is laid waste and there's only this stump of Israel left in the land and then that's going to be burned again. You keep preaching until that happens. And probably Isaiah was sawn in two by King Manasseh before he, was, before he repented. What a ministry. You know, live, live to your 70, 80 years old and then be hacked into two pieces by a king who wouldn't repent. And sometimes that happens, apparently. So lots of, you know, are, are we ready for the long haul? Now, of course, what that has all kinds of implications. Um, the first is that we might want to think about building institutions that would last and institutions that have a chance of contributing to the accumulation of God's work down through those generations. If you think about it, God has promised to be faithful to those generations. This is an important sort of subheading under this third point. Um, I've emphasized many times before, but just think of Genesis 17 again. God promises to be God to Abraham, and to his children, and to his offspring. And this is reflected in our practice of welcoming children as baby believers, of baptizing children in Christian families, welcoming them to the Lord's table. There's a whole discussion there, which we could go into, but that will take us off track. The, the point is that we, we want to recognize that God is being kind and welcoming our children to him. Now, that has... The same background has huge implications for what we might invest our time in. Can can you think of something that you could do which would stand a chance of enduring past your death? Well, like raising faithful children would be a cracking start, wouldn't it? If it's the case that we may have many more generations to go, and especially if it's the case that God promises to be faithful, not to, to his people only, but to his children's children and to their children for a thousand generations, 
then if you are married and able to have children, I don't know, not everybody is, and that, that means you have another calling for now. That doesn't mean, you know, it's not wrong, it just means God wants something else from you. But if you're in a position to do that, how big a deal should that be for you? Like, it should be a massively significant priority. The raising, the educating of your children, the, the deployment of resources to teach them the faith, to train them in godliness, to prepare them for life in the world, um, to realize that you've got this tricky balance where, on the one hand, they're young and they need to be protected from influences which are, are destructive to them. But on the other hand, they're, they're growing older and one day they will have to interact with people who aren't Christians. and you know, They need to be helped to navigate that transition and it's hard to do that. And acknowledging that it's hard is the first step to figuring out what to do and when. And, but to realize that that is a vastly more significant aspect of our ministries and our lives than we could easily imagine is, is the first step. You see what we're doing? I'm not predicting the future for you. What I'm telling you is the way this is going to work out well is if we have an army of Christian families raising an army of the next generation of children to whom God promises to be faithful. And we just keep doing that. And you're content to disappear into the mists of history and vanish further up the family tree on your great-great-great-great-great-grandparents' wall till they don't even know, they know your name. But by God's grace, you played the part that God gave you and equipped you to play. Uh, we, I, I've talked before about the importance of motherhood as a vocation. I think you know what I think about that. The most underrated and underappreciated vocation in our world and its importance arises in this context. Number three. Right, all happy? Let me pause there because there's a bunch of questions you might have with that. Anything coming in down the wires? All right, let's keep going. Number four. Um, Slight sidestep, but an important one. The church stands at the heart of God's purposes. Ephesians 3.10. God's plan is that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known uh, to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Um, There's so much we could talk about here, and we did talk about when we went through Ephesians together. But notice that there is a very significant corporate communal aspect to the way that we are supposed to function in the world. And we're so used to this that we could easily forget about it. And until you realise it's just not the case in other areas of life. God could have made it so that we commune with him by private meditation only. There's no corporate worship, no interconnectedness within families or through time down the generations. He could have just made it that the, um, our connection with him is mediated directly from us as individuals. And in fact, that's how lots of Christians function. And it's not the case. The church as a community has a central place to play in God's purposes. Um, it's interesting um, if you 
you think of the, the way in which the faithfulness of the church is depicted in Scripture as impacting the world around us. Let me just give you one example of this. Um, Turn with me to Psalm 67. In in the background here, some of you will recognize the work of our our great friend and mighty theologian, Jim Jordan, um, Garden Land World, let the hearer understand. Go read Three New Eyes and you'll, you'll know what I'm talking about. Um, but to turn to Psalm 67, this is a helpful shortcut to, to this, um, this underlying insight. And just notice what it says for a second. Psalm 67, verse 1. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Now, just stop there a second. Where's that taken from? Where do you recognize that from? Be gracious to you. Precious. Sorry? Moses' prayer. Moses' prayer. Almost. Almost. Very close, right? Yeah, the ironic blessing. You got the right book. I mean, it's Numbers. It's Numbers 6. Keep your finger in, in Psalm 67. Turn to Numbers 6. I mean, you're right. It is Aaron. It is Moses' words because Moses tells them to Aaron and then Aaron sort of recites them. So, end of Numbers 6. Um, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, number 6, 22, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, and this is what you're supposed to say to them. And this was um, traditionally said by the priests at the conclusion of their worship. They'll be blessed in in these words. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. So you see, what's envisaged, is, what's envisaged is a corporate worship service, like you've got in Leviticus 9, where you've got, at the end of Leviticus 9, you've got the, um, the, the blessing, the benediction. Um, uh, you've got a call to worship, a bunch of sacrifices, sin offering, whole burnt offering, or ascension offering, a peace offering. And then 9.22, Aaron lifted up his hands towards the people and blessed them. And this is what he'd have blessed them with. So this is what you say. When Israel is gathered together for worship at the conclusion of the service, as you're sending them out into the world, you say, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Remember those words? I have to remember them because I'm, I want to say them to you face to face without looking at my notes when I'm leading worship. So then you go back to Psalm 67 verse 1 and you think, well, what happens next? What's going to happen after that? May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Ironic blessing. That your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations on earth. There's actually a chiasm. It goes A, B, C, D. That D bit in verse 4 is in the middle. Then it goes C, B, A. I'll leave you to figure out the chiasm. It's a beautiful, very simple chiasm. Um, you saw it already, right? It's kind of easy, first and last. Anyway, now what does that mean? Well, the implication of that is profoundly important. It means that Psalm 67 is teaching us that the way that the nations will be transformed is by the people of God gathering faithfully to worship him. 
And God will first bless his people from the sanctuary. And then, and this is now footnote to all of Jim Jordan's work in Through New Eyes, the, 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 the renewal that began in the sanctuary with the people of God, faithfully worshipping him, will spread outwards through their life as a community and then outwards again to their life in the world. That's why in John 2, 3, and 4, it's um, wedding at Canaan and kicking over the temples in the, the tables in the temple, renew the sanctuary, chapter 2. Chapter 3, conversation with his brother, Nicodemus, an Israelite. So sanctuary, community, brother Nicodemus, Israelite. Chapter 4, who's he talking to? Who's Jesus talking to in John chapter 4? I told you earlier. Not quite. The Samaritan woman. Very good. Well done, KB and Nicole. You've got there exactly the same time. High five. Right? Sanctuary, community, world. And it happens in reverse. It happens in the same way when it goes in reverse. In Genesis 3 through 6, there are three falls in the early chapters of Genesis. You've heard me say this before. There's one in the sanctuary, Adam and Eve, the tree. Then there's one in the community. Cain kills his brother Abel. Then there's one in the world, the sons of God and the daughters of men. So, sanctuary, community, world. So if you want, to, you want to transform the world, what do you need to do? Well, you start by gathering faithfully in worship as a community. And then you watch what the Lord does. That your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. That's how the world's going to be transformed. It's interesting that um, you... You've got the same thing as Psalm 81. I was going to quote this to you, just, but uh, footnote. Psalm 81. Oh, I can't resist it. I, I'm already there almost because Psalm 67 is just downstream from it. Psalm 81. Why, why was um, Israel attacked and overwhelmed by their enemies? Was it their foreign policy? Was it the strength of their armies? Was it their... Um, Lack of discipline at their borders? No. It was their disobedience to the word of the Lord. That's what it says. Um, Verse 10, I'm the Lord your God. He brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Verse 11, but my people didn't listen to my voice. They wouldn't submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels, like Romans 1. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that they'd walk in my ways. I'd soon subdue their enemies. If you just walk in my ways, then I'll deal with your enemies. You know, all you need to do is to you know, gather for worship and pray and, and st- start loving your wives and stop viewing pornography and I'll deal with Roe v. Wade. Ooh. It's weird, isn't it? You look back and isn't that... Maybe. Maybe, maybe it's true. Maybe the Lord is being kind. Anyway, so there we are. The church stands at the heart of God's purposes. Let's skim through these remaining ones. (laughs) Some hope. There will be many ups and downs on the way. I mean, just this is where the history is typological really starts to be such a valuable insight. Um, Think of all the ups. Jacob's offspring settled in Egypt and safe after Joseph's faithfulness. Joseph is really the only faithful the only, he's the only man who's faithful in relation to sexual temptation, the big character in, 
in Genesis. And he's the guy who saves the nation. So at the end of Genesis, all the people are safe in Egypt. The family grows. And then what happens next? From that high pinnacle, Pharaoh starts to destroy the nation and kill the babies and oppress the, the people. And then you've got another escape from Egypt, Exodus, Mount Sinai, and the glory days of the first few months after the Exodus. And then you've got the long wilderness wanderings after the idolatry and sin of the people. And then you've got the conquest of the land. Uh, and then you've got the days of the judges for 350 years, a sort of spiral downhill. And then you've got the rise of the monarchy. And you've got the decline of the monarchy and the exile. You see ups and downs and ups and downs and ups and downs. And actually it's in that context that you, you start to see, well, maybe Israel actually has to come to an end as a people. Maybe they have to be finished so that they can be resurrected. So you notice um, in Ezekiel's vision of Israel in exile, the problem is not that they're a long way away from home and they can't get back to their temple. God has left the temple. He's long since departed. And Ezekiel 37, it's a vision of a dead army, Valley of Dry Bones. Their hope is gone. Not just it's a bit of a pickle and we're in trouble and we need to get back home. It's like you're dead. That's the real problem. So what do you need? You need a resurrection. If, if death is the problem, then a complete renewal is the solution. And so maybe America has to die. Like may, maybe actually what has to happen is that some unknown yet to us threat reduces America to a kind of 24th century version of what Assyria is today. But out of the rubble, something greater will arise. Now, what will, <clears throat> what will be preserved through that? It's the, that which hinges on the faithfulness of God down through the generations. Build things that will last. Your offspring might last. The people who you talk to over the garden fence who recover their faith in Christ and start coming back to church and bring their own children up in the fear and admonition of the Lord, that might last. Many people here, either themselves or secondhand, know of, can testify to, their, they owe their faith in Christ, humanly speaking, to some faithful Christian somewhere who wouldn't shut up about Jesus. That will last. Um, number six. The Lord will use inconspicuous people and actions to accomplish great things. I wrote a list, um, not just Hannah and Ruth, who, and Timothy, you mentioned Hannah earlier, like the, the childless wife out of the two wives of Elkanah, somebody really insignificant in social terms in Bronze Age Israel. It turns out to be the mother of the greatest of all the Judges, really, Samuel was the last of the judges. He said he said to have judged Israel. He's not numbered in the book of Judges, but he's... And he's the kind of guy who just wanders into the, to King David's presence and tells him what to do. Like, Samuel is a monumentally significant figure. That's why he's got two books of the Bible named after him. His mother was a nobody. Uh, Gideon? <laughs> like, well, I'm the least of my father's family, and my father's family is the least of the smallest clan of some puny little, not very impressive tribe. David, I mean, they didn't even bother to fetch David when Samuel came to anoint one of Jesse's sons. They're like, isn't there anybody else? 
Well, I mean, these are all the sons. No, no, there must be somebody else. Yeah, well, there's, there's David, but he's out with the sheep. And Samuel has to say, yeah, go and get him. I'm not going until I've seen him. He's the nobody. He's a little kid. He's like smaller than you, probably. <laughs> I don't know. Um, Daniel, a young man. Mary, a vulnerable young woman. Because God chose what's foolish in the world to shame the wise and chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong and what is low and despised, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being would boast through him. So this is profoundly significant for when you're thinking about the whole of the rest of your lives, you see. Because what, what is going to be significant in God's purposes? Oh, if only I could become, I don't know, the CEO of my company, then I could make a stand for Christ. If only I could become the mayor, if only I could become a congressman, if only I... Maybe I need to get a blog and a podcast and make an impression on the world, he says, having, I've got one of those things. Um, well, no, maybe you just need to be invisible and faithful and trust that God uses invisible, faithful people in his purposes. How many other Hannahs do you think we'll meet in glory? And we won't even have known their names, but God used them to do spectacular things. I, I always think of the story of Peter O'Brien's um, mother. Peter O'Brien was an Australian New Testament scholar. He's retired now, still alive. Amazing scholar. Um, uh, his mother was witnessed to by an elderly lady and for years. And eventually, um, Mrs. O'Brien became a believer, raised her son as a Christian. And, and he's, he, was, he was the standout professor at Moore Theological College when my friend Andrew Satch went there to study for a year. And it's just this little old lady evangelizing to her friend back in the early 20th century. The Lord does amazing things. Seven and eight. We can sort of roll these together, if you like. And then we'll go at three minutes past, quarter past eight, as usual. Um, we're, we're quite good, I think, at at least acknowledging the importance of and seeking to live out the implications of God's covenant promises to be gracious to his people and to their children. I think it's probably one of our denominational and church distinctives. I don't know that we always get it right. You know, sometimes we slip up like in anything, but at least we're, we've got our eye on that ball. When I was talking earlier about raising godly children, that wasn't the first time you'd heard that, right? We, we know at least what we ought to be trying to do in that domain of Christian life. I don't know that we're always so good at what Paul seemed to be really gripped by in 2 Corinthians 5.11. Therefore, knowing the fear of God, we persuade men. That's from the RSV translation. It's much more catchy than the ESV at this point. We, we're, we know what it's like to fear God. So I'm trying to persuade my next door neighbour to come to church. And it's not bums on seats. And it's not kudos with the pastors. What it is, is I, I fear God, so I'm going to try and persuade men. There, there is a, a lost art, probably, of evangelism among Reformed Christians. And maybe I'm not, I'm not going to be commending craziness and sandwich boards and megaphones and anything silly. But for people who you work with and live near you, what well, place to start praying and the reason is in the end number eight because there's salvation in no one else there's no name under heaven given to men by which we may be saved the point 
I want to make is um, we have been talking about what America's future holds and that necessarily leads us down a path of reflecting on social and political and institutional change as well as um, our own lives and our future as a church and as families. But none of that is the, the source of the stream. In the end, what needs to happen is that individual men and women and children trust in Jesus and want to follow him in their daily lives. So they believe in him and they repent of their sins and they're committed to following him. And that's where it all starts and really kind of where it all continues and ends. It's all genuine Christian social political transformation for the next how many thousand generations that the Lord decides it should last will happen because people love Jesus and want to follow him. So we might want to bear that in mind when, whenever we're making any decisions about anything at all. All right. Right on schedule. Um, you've been very attentive and patient. Those of you who are at home, I hope it's been helpful to you. I think I'll lead us in prayer and then I'll ask Pastor Shaw if he knows what we should do with these tables and chairs. All right, let's pray together. Merciful Father, thank you again for what you've shown us in recent weeks about your plan for the whole of human history. Teach us, we pray, to bring into our lives the fruit of what we have been reflecting on and above all else to seek to follow Jesus to make him the Lord that he is of every area of our lives to do so self-consciously and with enthusiasm and gratitude and joy and we pray that in this way we would be able to cut with the grain of your purposes and may even see them advanced in our day. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you very much, everybody. Pastor Shaw. Yeah, so uh, the good news is we, don't, we can leave the tables and chairs just as they are.